Hello and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams. And me, Ellie Betts. We're here to create a community of authors who persevere, are their most productive selves and publish at a speed they're comfortable with. And this week we're talking to Sasha Black about writing super bad villains. Sasha Black is a best-selling and competition-winning author, rebel podcaster, speaker, and casual rule-breaker. She writes about people with magical powers, sapphic fiction for teens, and other books about the art of writing. Back in January, I read her book, 13 Steps to Evil, How to Craft Super Bad Villains, and it gave me the most amazing idea for The Witch's Sacrifice. It was so beautifully evil. I loved every second of it. Thank you. So naturally... Based on that, I just had to speak to Sasha about her thoughts on writing the most evil villains. A big thank you to our patrons for all your support. We couldn't do this without you. As a patron, you get early access to episodes, bonus content, and our undying gratitude for supporting all the work that goes into these episodes to inspire and motivate you. And Christina has a sneaky surprise for you. That's right. I've just released the first couple of episodes of our new bonus series, Healthy habits. This exclusive bonus series is full of the techniques I use to manage my chronic health issues and now I want to share them with you. Regardless of what speed you write and publish at, there are techniques on things that can really impact our ability to write that we don't talk about. Stuff like nutrition, stuff like whether or not you're moving and getting out of your chair enough and getting that blood really pumping. Stuff like how your brain actually works so that you can get it to work for you. That sounds incredible. Where can our writers go to listening? To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. With me today is the rebel author, Sasha Black. Welcome back to the writers mindset. Thank you for having me. So today we are talking about one of our favorite topics, which is writing evil characters. Before we get cracking, though, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about you? Yeah, so I am Sasha Black. I am the host of the Rebel Author podcast. I also co-host with Daniel Wilcox, the Next Level Authors podcast. I am an author of nonfiction, uh, writing craft books for authors who want to improve their craft, their prose, their stories. Um, I've also just finished a young adult fantasy series, and now I am moving into the realms of sapphic fiction for teens. Ooh, very nice. So one of your nonfiction books is all about writing evil and the very best villains that we can. Mm -hmm. But why do you think so many of us love a good villain, sometimes even more than the hero? Yeah, I mean, I I personally prefer villains more than the heroes. But um, my answer to that has changed over the years. Of late, I am... Uh, obsessed with Clifton Straits. I don't know if you know what Clifton Straits are yet. Can you just explain it for our listeners who haven't heard of it before, please? Okay, so Clifton Straits is essentially a personality test um, that gives you a list of your top strengths. And essentially, the purpose of it is once you know what your strengths are, you can work on improving those strengths and ignore your weaknesses because strengths are um, a pathway to success. So rather than getting small gains 
on your by trying to improve your weaknesses if you just focus on improving your strengths you will get you will get the 10x effect essentially and any strength can lead you to any success that you want the they don't you know box you in to say oh if you only have this strength then you can do this or whatever it's not like that um you just have to find processes that work best for you and what i have learned recently is that villains are often what's called yellow dominant. So they have a certain set of strengths of which I share those strengths. So I think one of the reasons that I personally like villains is because I see myself reflected in them. Not that I'm a villainous bitch, but, um, you know, oh God, can I swear? Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, cool. Um, And then I think the other reason, okay, so like if if I take this as a more broad, why do I think people like villains? I think it's because villains question the truth, right? A lot of us get stuck in like stigmas or what society say we should, you know, expectations, societal expectations. But villains are these empowered creatures who follow their hopes and dreams no matter what. And they are relentless in their pursuit of those dreams. And like, yes, I know those dreams might not be good dreams, but it's that's not really the point. It's the fact that they are relentlessly pursuing what they like their big goals and their big dreams. And ultimately, isn't that what we all really wish we could do? So, oh, definitely. I, yeah. And so I think I think there is a little piece of us that wish that we were as bold and brave as villains, albeit probably for a more positive outcome. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think that's probably why. Of curiosity, who are your favorite villains, either from like books or film or TV? Right at this very moment, I so like I can't pick one villain that is forever my because you know new things come out and then you fall in love with new ones or whatever. Right at this moment, I love Villanelle from Killing Eve. Mm -hmm. Um, she is. I don't know if it's the character or if it's the actress's kind of portrayal of the character, but oh my God, she is just exceptional. Um, So I love her. And then, you know, some more classic ones. I really loved uh, Agent Smith in The Matrix. His kind of ethos and uh, like a manifesto made me stop and go, whoa, wait, what? And like for one second, I completely agreed with everything that he was saying. Who else did I, who else do I love? I love um, more anti-hero types like um, Beetlejuice. Um, who else do I love? Um I can't think. There's a couple anyway. <laughs> we we talk about the Marvel villains a lot in this house because my boyfriend also seems to like the villains more. So he's a big fan of Darth Maul. He loves Thanos. His display picture on Disney Plus is Thanos. Yeah. Um, and also, is it Killmonger in Black Panther? Yeah. Yeah, because like they they feel like they're doing the right thing and you can almost understand their logic, but they're going about it in a way that's hurtful rather than trying to make positive entirely positive change Mm. they're going about it by punishing some people who don't necessarily deserve it or they have or they're just doing it in a bit of an aggressive kind of way rather Mm. than trying to do it in a more diplomatic way I guess which is seen as the good way of doing things yeah I like one of the so my dad told me this story the other day about this person in a country so this is a true i'm not i'm not going to mention the countries because i don't want to upset or offend anybody um but basically this person in power um had a problem because a disease 
basically was ripping through the city and thousands of people were dying. And so this person promised um, like people who were on the streets and the homeless people, uh, basically safety on an island. They were going to ship everybody, you know, people who are very like into drugs and things, you know, people causing problems, essentially. They, it, it, they promised, this person promised them safety um, on this island. So shipped them all off uh, in this boat and then sunk the boat. Within a week, the disease and the illness was eradicated. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, who's the real villain? Because what this person did is fucking awful. Awful. But also, he saved tens of thousands of people's lives. Yeah. So I don't like when my dad told me the story, I was like, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> like how do I respond to that? Like, like me just then. <laughs> yeah, pretty much exactly. You know, because that's like, who does that? Who does yeah. that? You don't do that. Um, but also saved millions of lives. So, you know, was that a villainous decision? I don't know. Like, do you know, it's that age old question of, do you do you sacrifice one for the sake of many? You know, but who who has the right to make that decision? I don't know. You know, and it's and it's taking that right and and that godlike right and making that decision with lies that that creates that people perceive as villainous. So yeah, like I love that moral debate, like between what is good and what is evil and where where those lines are. You know, and that person who was in power felt like they were doing the right thing. So, but like morally, you're deeply conflicted at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. When my dad told me that, I was like, oh my God, I need to go and like research like, what happened. Yeah. yeah that that's how I was spending my afternoon after this. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you a little bit more detail <laughs> like, after. But yeah, I was like, oh, MG. All right. Before we go off on a tangent about all the history of this and the moral debate, um, Although that would be very fun. Uh, what are some common mistakes you see in fictional villains? So I think like the two most common mistakes are not having a solid motive for the villain. I think that, you know, even some villains who work, who are like really famous, they don't have that. They just want power. Right. And without a justifiable reason. Now, there are rule breakers and examples that break rules all the time and they're still successful, like for example, and, you know, I, I disagree strongly with the author's personal views and opinions. So that author will remain nameless. But Lord Voldemort is a classic example of a villain who really doesn't have a very justified motive, in my humble opinion. Um, and yet, you know, the books are wildly successful. So there are rules, uh, there are rule breakers um, out there and examples of rule breakers. But I genuinely think that when you have a villain who has a more solid motive, like take Agent Smith, for example, you bring a depth and a richness to the characters that make your readers buy into those villains in a way that you just don't get with other stories. So that's probably the first one. And then the second one is not matching the villain and the hero closely enough closely enough together wait what are words you know what I mean so basically like the 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 hero and the villain um should be aligned and we might talk about this a little bit more in terms of like like thematically they should be aligned like motivations um goals they need to be connected so that whoever wins the win impacts the loser and um, because that then you get a uh, more holistic story and a more like fully like 
it's closed off and satisfying to the reader when you do that. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Although I, I do find some people are like, oh, this character is just a psychopath. Oh, they're just a narcissist. And that's their justification for the character being the way they are. And it's still kind of a surface level justification, right? It is. Yeah. So there's a whole chapter in my book about mental health, because generally speaking, mental like mental people with mental health disorders are stigmatized quite a lot in fiction and never more so than with villains like people like, oh, this character's schizophrenic. Therefore, they're doing bad things. But like that's complete bullshit. People with schizophrenic are not outwardly aggressive. Um like yes okay of course there's going to be the the 0.1 percent of people who have just like happen to have schizophrenia but you know who who do something bad but then there's more people out in the world who don't have schizophrenia who do bad things every single day and the problem is that people use the disorder as the um cause for the actions whereas that's not the case at all you can have depression and be an asshole you know <laughs> like just because you have oh, depression yeah. doesn't mean you're gonna <laughs> gonna be a bad person right and so i think that's like that's the problem in in those circumstances using the mental health disorder as the as the justification for bad behavior is essentially stereotyping and stigmatizing a section of society it is, and it's really not fair. And I actually realised my protagonists have more mental health issues than my villains a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, but that's but that's great, right? Because that's you know all about representation, and you know what you're doing is allowing people who do have mental health um, disorders to feel represented and to feel seen in in fiction. And like when you asked me the last question, that is where this conversation is going to go. But I'll save that for later. <laughs> Yeah, I I think that represent rather than the words, I think that representation is just really important. And also, I'll be honest, I don't know how to write my characters any other way. <laughs> I I find it really hard to be like, how do I write someone who doesn't have anxiety? What mm. does that look like? Like, I live with someone who doesn't have anxiety. Been in a relationship with him for twelve years, still can't visualize it. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm just so in my own head going through different types of anxiety all the time. That's just the way my brain works. And I've recently started down the path of being diagnosed with ADHD and retrospectively looking at my characters, I've realized I've given them some ADHD traits without realizing. Not that they're like completely ADHD or anything, but they have the traits there. And I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. I, you know, yeah, I, I, I think it's fantastic and more authors should do it, so. I agree. It is hard though. Um, so before we go off talking about representation diversity, you have a really great episode on um, diversity that I was listening to earlier, if you want to give it a quick plug. So uh, Maisie Eddings um, came on. She wrote a book called A Brush With Love, which is about a dentist. It's a romantic comedy and the protagonist is neurodiverse and um, suffers with anxiety and a few other things. And yeah, we have a fantastic discussion about, you know, how to write characters who who are neurodiverse with authenticity and with respect whilst also being realistic um and yeah it's really really it was really interesting talking to her so yeah it's a good discussion and it's one of those things that is hard to balance and I think the more research you do the more balanced um what you write will become absolutely going back to our villains then 
Um, you briefly touched on it already about how your villain should represent the book's anti-theme. So can you explain what that is and why a villain needs to represent it? Yeah, so like, you know, everybody should know what their book's theme is. Um, it is the message, the underlying kind of thread that that runs through your story. Um, so like a good example is The Hunger Games, um, where, I mean, to distill it very simply into one word, the book is about sacrifice. Obviously, it's more complex than that. But essentially, um, your, your hero, so in this instance, Katniss, represents self-sacrifice she makes multiple multiple self-sacrifices in order to help save uh you know look after those loved ones that that she she loves but the villain um president now i always get his surname wrong coriolanus how have you said something it? like that yeah president snow anyway <laughs> he represents the opposite so the anti-theme he represents the flip side now your hero and villain should always be like two sides of the same coin they have to have this deeply connected um connection (laughs) for want for a better word and and so he represents um like sacrifice of others so for example she um right basically in the first chapter she um sacrifices herself and volunteers as a tribute so to save her sister and so she's sacrificing herself in order to to protect whereas um president snow like sacrifices others he is literally sacrificing teen, teen kids he um you know, brings them back to life and makes them wolves or whatever it is that that he does and, and, you know, sacrifices people over and again and, you know, forces uh, people to work in and live in horrible conditions in order to uh, better himself, essentially. And so when you have like a hero and villain, they should be in conversation with each other. Like, I don't mean I don't mean that literally, but like metaphorically, it is a debate of the thematic question. And the only way to do that is to have one person on one side of that and then one person on the other side of that. And I think when you don't have that, the books feel like something is missing. They feel like unsatisfying, I think. So, yes, hopefully that's explained it. Yeah, I agree. That was something I really juggled with when I started writing fantasy was like, what do I want my theme to be? What do I want them to represent? And I realized that my theme is more of a question and it's about whether or not we have the right to play God and control other people's lives because it's a series about necromancy. So it's about do they have the right to bring people back? Should they? Should they use their powers to heal themselves or heal other people? What are the kind of moral implications of that? And Mm. there are some people who do it for personal gain. There are some people who do it for selfless reasons. So there's kind of lots of different aspects that I'm really enjoying exploring there. Yeah, and and exactly. It goes back to that example um, earlier on. You know, was that person in power? You know, that person in power technically did a good thing because it say he saved loads of lives but in reality that meant sacrificing a load of lives and so that's the interesting thing about villainy because obviously everybody knows that a villain thinks that they are that they are the hero of their own story right and i just find that so fascinating that like ability that we have to explore those moral lines and the the ability to make a reader stop and go oh <laughs> you know and question what they, yeah. they think as well and the only way you can do that is by having like those two characters directly uh oppose each other or this is what I also find interesting when they're both actually going for the same goal but they have either different 
reasons why or different methodologies for going for the goal and one methodology hurts more people and one methodology helps people you know that sometimes is just as interesting um like an interplay as having them completely opposite yeah I agree one of the books that always stuck with me because of its moral question was Jody Pico's The Storyteller Mm. cover your ears if you haven't heard and don't want to spoiler because we're bad for spoilers on this show but um at the very end the character who did work in a concentration camp but did not physically hurt anyone should we say whereas his brother did he actually saved someone um he asks someone to kill him after he's told her his life story and you never find out if she does it or not it ends at that moment when she says it Oh bloody brilliant. My god. Oh my god. Oh my god. That is horrific. I would be she must have pissed her readers off. <laughs> she wow. does it a lot, so her readers are kind of used to it now. Yeah. Because her books are kind of known for raising those moral questions and not answering them because it's yeah. not about inflicting judgment on you or telling you what to believe. It's about raising those debates and really making you think. Yeah, yeah. I read a couple of hers. I can't remember. One was about a young girl and a sister and someone. One of the one, the one that you didn't expect to die, died. My sister's keeper. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't read that one, but one of my friends has, and she always rages about the film and how different it is. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I haven't read it because I don't like sad books. (laughs) Yeah, I love a sad book. Like, oh, I love like having my heart ripped out. But I like bittersweet, right? So yeah. like there's so even though there's a sad ending, like there's also hope like yeah. at the end of the story. So you can rip my heart out as long as you heal it and put a plaster on it. <laughs> <at some point. laughs> um, we talked about uh, motivations a little bit just then. So what's the difference between a goal and a motivation and why are they both important? Yeah, so goals are like the tangible outcomes that your villain wants like the villain wants to destroy someone's business the villain wants to bomb a city the villain wants to build an army that's a goal um the motivation is the reason why the villain wants it so like why do they want to destroy the business like what is the root cause of that who upset them like what is the the backstory there? Um, you know, and then the same, like, why do they want to blow up the city or what, you know, all of these things. So this is, that's the, the core difference. But the thing is, is that your villain actually needs both of these because a villain without a goal, so without the specific outcome that they are after, leads to a villain with no depth, right? A villain without a motive leads to a meandering plot. It's not a very tight plot. It's not a tight story. So you need both of those in the villain in order to have a character that can really pull and create that pace, tension and conflict throughout the story. How does a soul scar tie into that goal and motivation? And what actually is one? So a soul scar is essentially another word for a wound. Um, so everybody always gives their hero a wound. They That's the, the thing that creates the flaw. But the problem is, I don't think that wound is a, is a big enough, strong enough word. So I always like to say it's a soul scar because these wounds, especially for villains, they have to run so deep that they have left this gigantic scar, literally, like on, on their very being in order to generate the mindset that enables them to create 
or, or do bad actions, essentially. So a soul scar could be, I don't know, like losing a limb or losing a loved one or failing to save a sibling. Um, it could be, you know, uh, sacrificing one to save many and then the guilt that comes from that. So like a soul scar is something that, that yeah, creates this wound or flaw in the villain. And the reason that you need it is because that is usually one of the things that creates the motivation and the reason why in a villain's character. Um, and also it creates a lot of depth and often really solid backstory. So it's a, it's a great one to include. I really like the term soul scar because you say wound and it almost implies it's got the possibility to heal. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. That's why it's a wound for a hero, right? Because heroes heal, whereas villains nine times out of 10, they don't heal. The only time that that's not necessarily the case is when the villain is a protagonist. Um, And I just did a masterclass recently on villain protagonists and it makes me want to write a second edition <laughs> because there's so I've done so much thinking about this that I've got so much more to say on the topic now. I mean, it was like the, one of the first books I ever published, so it was years ago now. So uh, yeah, I, I suspect a second edition or or a second villains book will come out at some point. Ooh. Have yeah. you got any good examples of villain protagonists that you'd recommend people analyze if it's an area they want to explore a bit more? Yeah, so I'm just going to give films because they're what's on, on the top of my head. But Cruella, the recent Cruella with Emma Stone, it, she's a protagonist, and the recent Joker um, with Joaquin Phoenix. Both of those are um, villain protagonists. Let me see. I'm trying to think of the... Uh, Megamind is another one in a kid's film. Um, 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 yeah, I, I can't do it on the spot. <laughs> those three, though. <laughs> I think three is plenty. Yeah. Um, one of the things that really stuck out for me, other than something we'll get to later, was you said that it's important for the villain to have something that they love, whether it's their mom, a pet, a child, something. And it made me laugh because I realized I'd given my villain a dog just because I felt like they needed a dog. But then it actually helped make the villain feel more human and give him more depth because he had that capability of loving something. And the dog was basically him in dog form. Yeah. <laughs> so. Why is it important for a villain to love something like that? So this is one of the areas that um, I kind of, I've developed my thinking on since I wrote the book. When I first wrote the book, in my mind, it was because we needed to give the, the villain like one thread of humanity, one piece of them that is good. Because if you don't have like nobody is all bad, like it's just unrealistic. And even though, yes, OK, you know, we there are horrific people in history who you could say are purely bad. But even those people in history thought that they were doing the right thing. Right. So in a weird way, that means that there was a thread of good, you know, whatever. I'm not here to debate <laughs> what good means. So essentially it was about realism. And that was kind of where I was going with that originally. Roll on five years. And for me, it's actually about reader connection, right? And so we we have this concept called Save the Cat, which um, Blake Snyder uh, developed and he's a film, film well, was a screenwriter. And the point of Save the Cat is to, so when your hero starts the story, they're flawed. But when you have a Save the Cat moment, and quite literally, I mean, like, save a cat, although, of course, there are many examples where, you know, maybe they help an old lady walk across the road or whatever. You endear 
the protagonist to the reader. Now, I think that in a good book, you will do the same with a villain because your reader needs to feel something about the villain. It doesn't matter what they're feeling, but they need to feel something. And if you want your reader to even for half a second, question whether or not they agree with the villain. The only way to do that is to make them connect with the villain. And so you can do that by either a save the cat, like giving them a dog or a pet where they're kind to, or you can do a reverse save the cat, which is what I see quite often when you have a villain as a protagonist. And so a reverse save the cat is instead of the character doing something good, something awful happens to the character and it has the same effect on the reader. So when something awful happens to somebody, we're like, oh, no, that poor person. So in the Cruella film, she gets dragged away from her mother um, and her mum dies and she's all alone um, in London. Now, that's awful for a little orphan girl, you know, so automatically we feel sorry for her. We, we are connected to her. In the Joker film, he gets beaten up by um, some kids when he's just trying to do his job holding a banner. And that's awful. He didn't deserve it. And so we automatically connect with him, um, despite the fact that they are both unlikable characters, technically. So yeah, like it's for me, it's about connection with the reader. And that connection, like, the importance of it can't really be overstated, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Another thing you mentioned it's important for a villain to have is integrity. So why does that matter? So integrity is essentially when, like, you have a set of values or ethics that you hold really dear to yourself. It's like a like a moral honesty. Now, weirdly, like in Enemies to Lovers, one of the, the foundations of that is this raw, honest truth. And there is something that makes a character... I'm trying to think of a word that isn't integrity, but like makes a character feel genuine when they have integrity and they stick to their moral values. Now, a hero does this because we want to see them as like knights in shining armor. They have these values. They couldn't possibly break their values, except when they do, because they have to save the loved one, you know, and yet we see that as a good thing. With villains, it creates a kind of ferocious, terrifying villainy. When a villain says they will kill your mother if you don't do X, Y, Z, and then you don't do X, Y, Z, and then they kill your mother, that is terrifying because they follow through. And yet we accept that as a reader because they told the truth the whole time. They they told the truth the whole way through. Like one of the examples that I love about this is President Snow in The Hunger Games. He always says, I only ever kill for a reason and I will never lie to you. And it's true. He sticks to those the whole way through. And I can't help but kind of love him because he he's so honest and truthful, despite the fact it's fucking awful what he's doing so yeah i um i i think it creates a kind of terrifyingness around a villain when they have integrity and they also it creates tension and conflict because the reader will innately know that if a villain says they're going to do x y and z then you know that they're going to do that and that brings up the tension for the reader as well i've been re-watching Rosalian isles recently and um 
Isles's birth father, because she was adopted, he is a serial killer. He's part of the mob, but he actually says to her when someone is making it look like there's been murders going on, that's his MO. He says, you know, I don't kill women. I don't kill children. I only kill people who deserve it. And there are certain people that it looks like it is him doing it because it's the same MO and stuff. But he's like, it really, really wasn't me. And it turned out it wasn't him because he does actually have integrity. But at the same time, he's still quite terrifying because he's still a serial killer. Exactly. Well, that's like Dexter as well, right? Like Dexter has a moral code that he sticks to religiously. So, you know, he's only going to kill people if they if the police force weren't able to prosecute. And in a weird way, as a viewer, that makes you makes what his he's doing and his actions more acceptable. So like integrity is one of these tools that you can use to really make the reader feel uncomfortable. <laughs> exactly. Let's move on and talk about endings then, because we talked about how we both like bittersweet endings and obviously happily ever after. Generally, it's more of a romance thing, but you do find it in other genres. But why is it not credible if the villain loses everything and then the villain gets everything? I think realism, you know, in the real... I know there's a difference between fiction and reality, but it's very unusual. Like, all war, everybody loses, right? Everyone loses with war. It doesn't matter if you're on the winning side of a war, you still will lose thousands of people thousands of your citizens and and i think that ultimately every book has some kind of battle or war or sacrifice that has to get made and so ultimately i think it brings a sense of realism and sacrifice like the hero sacrificing and the villain making the hero sacrifice helps to complete that change arc so it creates a more emotionally gratifying ending that the hero wasn't handed uh, the prize, so to speak, on on a play. They had to fight for that win. They have to um, do something, change something. Um, And that is really what the reader is there for. They're there for that change to see how on earth the hero is going to get around this seemingly um, unbeatable villain. And the harder it is, the more satisfying that ending is. The heart, the bigger the sacrifice, the the greater the the payoff. I think uh, for the reader. So, how far do you think writers should push their main character then in that climax? Like, should it make them uncomfortable to push them that hard? I think so, because otherwise, what like what are you doing? Like, I really like. I mean. <sighs> This might be just my opinion, because obviously, you know, you take Disney, you're not going to have, you can't traumatise kids, can you? But, you know, I really think that the hero should have to sacrifice something that means an awful lot to them if they want to to win, because otherwise, have they really changed, right? They ha- They should have to let go of a piece of themselves, or they should have to let go of something that means a lot to them. There's one exception to that because um, we have like the hero's journey and then we've also got the heroine's journey and Gail Carragher's written a great book about this. And I think you can push too far if you have given, if you have promised the reader something. So for example, the Divergent series, sorry, spoilers, um, but the Divergent series is a really good example of an author who made a unwritten promise. 
So the Divergent series follows um, Tris Pryor, but she is a heroine. She is not a hero. And so in heroine stories, it's all about bringing people together and the team winning, right? But at the end of, uh, what was it called? Allegiant? Can't remember. Anyway, at the end of the last book, she dies. So she dies a, her- a hero's death in a heroine's story. And like, I personally felt so betrayed. Um, and I think loads of loads of readers felt very betrayed. And it's because she had given this unwritten promise that it would be a happy ever after. And I think that is the occasion because, you know, you can kill off a hero. You absolutely can make them make the ultimate sacrifice. Um, but only if you set it up that way. Um, and so, yeah, that would be my caveat. Like, just be careful if you make sure you're like foreshadowing that these things are going to happen is what I would say. Yeah. This is why I've become a big fan of doing an outline with my books. I didn't do it for like the first 16 books or something, but now because of how intertwined some of my plots are, I've started doing it so that I don't shoot myself in the book because working on Hollywood heartbreak, which overlapped with the first couple of what happened in books and also juggling all of the really complicated themes in that it was a mind fuck. Mm-hmm. And if I had plotted my first couple of books in more detail, I wouldn't have had to go back and reread stuff because I would have just had notes to refer back to. And so now I've been doing that with the Afterlife Calls series. And it was reading that chapter in your book about climaxes that made me go, oh, my God, I haven't pushed my characters hard enough. Mm-hmm. I can do way more. So I was flitting between like reading a page and then writing notes of what I could do <laughs> next. <laughs> and then like I was editing it and reading it um to send to my beta readers and it was the first time I read one of my books and go yeah yeah (laughs) like I I almost gave myself a book hangover which sounds really big-headed but I'm generally quite harsh on myself right and I just thought no you know what this is the perfect way to wrap up this kind of four book arc and lead into the next one for these characters because I hadn't realized it but I've been foreshadowing some of these events anyway yeah, love it, love it. Does it always have to be the hero that takes down the villain, though? Could it be, like, a side character, a mentor, the bestie? This is a really hard question, but I, I, to give you a black and white answer, yeah, it does have to be the hero. In a heroine's journey, when you have, like, the ragtag group crew of friends, you can absolutely have all of those friends in the climax, right? There are different kinds of stories. There are stories where the the hero goes off on his own to save the day. And then there are heroine stories where it's about the group and about the collective. Now, that said, the, the crew of friends or the found family, whoever it is, can all be there helping to set up um, the, the heroine to make that final blow, whatever that looks like. But it has to be the heroine to make the final blow because ultimately that final blow is the conclusion to the heroine's character arc. And if they are not making the final blow and ending the villain or, or you know, defeating the inner conflict, whatever it is, then they're not really completing their character arc. And if they don't complete their character arc, your readers aren't going to be as satisfied. Like, I think you really cheat yourself out of um, that, what's the word? Like that satisfying book hangover sigh that a reader will get when finally the hero took down the villain. 
And also the other reason you need the, the hero to do it is because ultimately they are the ones driving the book. They are the ones or they should be the ones driving the story. And therefore, if they've driven the story all the way to the, the finale, why would you let anybody else make that final blow? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, that was something I always knew who was going to take down the villain because of the fact she's been emotionally manipulated by him the whole time. And all of the other characters are present, but they're doing different things. Like, I can't say anything in case there are any listeners and they're already going to tell me off for spoilers because this book isn't even out yet. But it was really important to me that they were all there and that they all kind of lifted her up in some way. But she had to be the one to make take that final blow and then decide if she was going to actually kill this person or just make them suffer in a kind of princess bride type of way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, you know, they don't have to kill off the villain because sometimes that's a choice they don't, you know, a a hero isn't going to make. But also sometimes vengeance is bliss. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You've already mentioned one of the books you chose last time we spoke to you, which was the Divergent series. Oh, okay. Yeah. But have you got any more books that have changed your life that you would like to share with people? So I'm going to cheat a little bit and say it's a genre that's changed my life so um around July last year I picked up the first queer novel that I've ever read now as a queer woman (laughs) that's probably a bit weird but like you know every time I would go into Waterstones or wherever I'd be faced with a slew of straight young adult books so that's what I read and I didn't think anything of it um and you know, so that's also what I wrote. And it just so happened that I, I picked up um, a queer fake dating book. And this was Hanny and Issue's Guide to Fake Dating. And it was the first time I had ever read about two queer women. And I was, and I really it was like, oh my God, like they need to get together. And I like felt all the things and I felt so much emotion. And I was like, whoa, like I really enjoyed that. And like, you know, it's it's a good book but it's not the best book in the world it is a it was a solid story and I enjoyed reading it but I enjoyed reading it way more than I should have enjoyed reading it for for sort of kind of the standard of the book and I was like what is that so I picked up another queer book and I think I can't remember what that one was I think it was by Tess Sharp the the girls I've been and then I picked up another book and another book and then I read Some Girls Do by Jennifer Dugan Duggan and it was after reading that one that I was like oh I see now the connection is the fact that all these characters and all these protagonists are gay. Like, and I was like, oh. And so now I have been consuming queer fiction. And it was a real, like, come to Jesus moment where I was like, oh my God. And now I can't unknow it, right? I can't unknow the fact that there are queer books out there and that I like reading them more than I like reading straight books. And so, yeah, now for me, like that, that has changed everything. So I spent like the last six, seven months finishing off this the series which is kind of behind me and um now i'm moving into writing uh sapphic fiction for teens and yeah like that has literally changed the course of my career because i can't i can't knowingly write straight books anymore at least not for a while anyway maybe i'll go back to it but that's so cool i love that you just yeah that it's just sparked complete change in direction by discovering these books yeah like literally I couldn't, 
I was like, this must be what everyone feels when they read about relationships in books. Like, and I love romance. So like, you know, and I would ship the characters still like in a straight romance. It's not, but it's a totally different feeling when you see your love in a book. It has literally changed my life. Like I, I feel so much stronger about fiction now than I have done in ages. And like, it's almost like I've fallen in love with reading again. That's which so is, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So. Didn't you mention in the episode we talked about earlier about you looked into how many queer YA books there were or something and there really wasn't very many? Yeah. So um, queer young adult books, when I did my research about six to eight weeks ago, there were about 760, I think it was, uh, books in queer young adult. And of those, at the time, it was about 150 that were sapphic. Now I think it's over 200 because there's a lot of books coming out now all the time. Even still, like 150, 160 out of 760, it shows you like how tiny this market is. So yeah, like it's a very, very small market. And I think it's going to be a really hard sell. Um, But I don't care. (laughs) But I think there is demand for it because I've spoken to a lot of people who've been like, I don't connect to straight romance in the same way that I do queer romance where's the queer romance at, you know, and they just don't even know how to find it. Yeah, yeah. So my plan is to basically clear my decks of work and then write hard and fast for the rest of this year. (laughs) Very nice. Yeah. You've been recommending some queer fiction on your Instagram as well, haven't you? Yeah, so I missed last week um, because it was my birthday and my wife randomly flew my dad over from the Netherlands as a big oh. surprise. So yeah, I, did, I like lost all of Friday, but that's fine. Um, so yeah, every Friday I will release like a, a little slideshow of like, I don't know, I don't know what I've done, like maybe... I can't actually remember what I've done, but I'll do it like by trope or I'll do, you know, fantasy books I want to read. And and they're all queer and they're all sapphic. And the other thing that I've done is I've actually collated the list of 150 books, um, although I've just found another list. So I and I've also brought a load more books. So I need to compile it again. And um, I think next month, maybe what is it? We're in March, April or May. I'm going to start releasing it as a reader magnet. Um, so if people are looking for recommendations, yeah, like follow me on Instagram. And then in a month or so's time, I will announce that I'm like, you you know, I'm going to share this uh, leaflet basically. So, um, so yeah, I basically want to have the biggest list of queer books for teens or like mostly sapphic books, I would say. I, I haven't really got like gay or trans books on them a couple of trans books are on there but yeah because it's so hard it it was so bloody hard to find these books so I'm like well I'll share that and I will you know but you've got to sign up to my mailing list (laughs) yeah where can our listeners go if they want to check you out on Instagram or anywhere else Okay, so you can uh, follow uh, my podcast just using any podcatcher and it's the Rebel Author Podcast. I am most active on Instagram, which is at Sasha Black Author and it's Sasha with a C, so S-A-C-H-A or my website, sashablack.co.uk. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fun. Ah, thank you for having me. If you enjoyed The Writer's Mindset, we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a rating or review on the podcast platform of your choice or a thumbs up on YouTube. It really helps other writers to find us so that we can help them to achieve their wildest writing dreams too. And don't forget, if you'd like early access episodes, a chance to submit questions for our guests and listen to our new bonus series that Christina mentioned earlier, come and join us over at Patreon.
uh, patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. Every little bit helps us to help you more, whether it's a rating or a view or becoming a patron. I'll see you next time. Keep writing.